mindfulness mode. You get to choose to be responsible for how you move forward. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here in mindfulness mode with me, your host and mindfulness life coach, Bruce Lankford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thriving is something that we all long to do. Isn't that one of our main goals? We just want to thrive. We want to enjoy our lives. We want to be grounded and content. Well, I have the person here with me today who is all about thriving. He studied thriving for years. He shares his knowledge about how to thrive, and he's written a number of books. He has a phenomenal podcast. I'm here today with Lee Bauckham. Lee, it's great to be here. So good to have you with us. So are you in mindfulness mode today, Lee? <laughs> I try to stay in mindfulness mode, <laughs> Bruce. You know, the world keeps trying to shake us out of that. <laughs> so uh, I, I think the best we can do is have those moments of mindfulness. <laughs> I do too. And we're both laughing because we've had some tech issues here. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's a perfect time to be mindful. I'll That's tell right. you because That's a uh, challenge. tech issues happen to everyone. And uh, so I'm just really excited to have you here with us, Lee. You've, you've got a lot in your bio and uh, you're a thrivologist and life coach. And I think that's very cool. And, and for the last three decades, you've been studying how people thrive and you've applied this information both in your writings and teachings and coaching. And you've written seven books. So that's pretty incredible. And uh then you have your podcast, which is called the Thrivology Podcast, which is really phenomenal. It's just filled with so many lessons and, and it's just like having a coach and you just log in and listen to that podcast and wow, there is so much to learn there. So Lee, what does mindfulness mean to you? Uh, you know, I, it's interesting how we have gotten into this place where mindfulness is this really big thing when it's really presence. You know, I mean, I, you know, I look around and it's like every other creature does mindfulness automatically. You know, whatever is going on, <laughs> there they are. And then there are us humans who, you know, take a simple idea and make it so complicated. Uh, and and so um, I think it's just about being present. Um, wherever you are, that's really where you are. I, I do a lot of work with relationships. And one of the problems with relationships is there's a lack of presence in them. You know, there people aren't, even in conversations, you can see somebody is already fast forwarding into the conversation uh, and, and not even a part of the conversations going on right now. We live in a distracted world already, much less the fact that we have an internal world. Uh, and so uh, mindfulness for me is just being present to this moment where I am, what I'm feeling what's going on around me, what's going on with that other person, and really being uh, keyed into that. Well, Lee, I'm really interested in how you got connected to the the whole idea of thriving, the word thriving, and then thrivology, and, and that's your whole theme. How did that become your passion? Yeah, so um, one of the things I got discouraged about in my training, my background is as a therapist, and um, we spent a lot of time looking at what's wrong with people, what went wrong, what's wrong with people, and there was this whole idea in therapy that, you know, you're trying to get somebody kind of back to this okay point. Um, Freud said it himself, you know, his, his thing was to get everybody from a neurosis to common, ordinary unhappiness, and I'm like, that's a 
that's a worthy goal, right? <laughs> Let's get yeah. to at least be unhappy, right? And I, I thought there's got to be something beyond that. And so in the early days, um, my research took me into resilience research, which really came out of um, the same old pathology research, but there are a few people who are going, well, why is it that there are some people who do well, even in spite of these hardships? So that's resilience. And for me, resilience research was always about getting back to a base level. You know, something happens, it knocks you down. How do you get back to base level? And over time, I started wondering what gets you beyond that. Um, that became really pointed when I was in my mid-30s and had a, a pretty um, a scary health issue. And so suddenly I realized that uh, what I had been doing was not even following my own study and started getting really serious about what's beyond that. Like if something happens to you, how can you not just get back to base level, but how can you exceed that? And that really began to be my focus, both in therapy work and coaching work and in my research. Well, I uh, spent time reading your, your book, Thrive Principles, and it's 15 strategies for building your thriving life. And I just loved how easy it was to digest your content and how sensible it was. I mean, we hear some of these, these uh, suggestions and these lessons other places, but you have a way of communicating with story and, and just making this all seem so sensible. How, how did you come to the point where you did so much writing? I mean, you, you must do a lot of writing because you've written, what is it? Uh, seven books was it uh, yeah i mean there it, it all depends on how you count but yeah there are seven books in print and then i've got a scads of i've got a course that is mostly writing and um yeah so i do a lot of writing um that's one of my disciplines i've done books a different number of different ways you know there's one idea that you write a book like you get an inspiration and you just do it because of inspiration. I found that that worked a couple of times, but for the most part, it's getting up and spending about an hour and a half every morning before the house comes alive, before the, yeah. the phone starts ringing and the emails go off and spend that hour just writing. Um, it, for me, it's a way of processing and thinking through, but a little, um, little secret, I'm dyslexic. So writing is um, also a challenge to me just because words are a challenge to me. And so uh, I have a love-hate relationship both with books, now I've written seven, and with writing itself. But I still find it to be the best way of getting information out in you know an easy, digestible format. And so one of the things that people have commented about that, you know, kind of the simplicity and, and conversation is because that's how I have to write. <laughs> yeah. I write what I think. Uh, and uh, sometimes that uh, den uh, denies that there are grammar rules, but I try to at least make it readable. Yeah. Well, in the book I'm referring to, Thrive Principles, you start off by talking about uh, two people two people in this book and it's quite interesting that one of them sees sees themselves really as a victim and the other one it's quite the opposite tell us a little bit about that it was really a great way to start that book i thought yeah and the more i've uh, watched people the more i'm aware that we get to choose a role in life and usually there's something to do with what got us rewarded as a child uh, and and not necessarily like somebody said, oh, I want to reward that, but we got attention. Somehow we got attention and it's real easy to fall into that trap of, uh, of playing that victim role um, because part of what it does is it means it's not my fault, not my problem. Yeah. 
but it keeps us trapped there. Um, and so one of the, the big things that I push in the book is the idea of responsibility. And a lot of times I start this conversation and people go, oh, you're blaming me. No, I'm just saying we get to choose how we respond. We always have a choice. Responsibility, which is Jack Canfield kind of uh, made that that clarification for us that responsibility is response ability. We have the ability to respond differently. And I deeply believe that we all, at whatever's going on, get a choice either in our actions or in our attitude about that. Uh, so that was kind of the beginning point. I, I think any point where we begin to move towards thriving requires us to say, there are things that happen to all of us and they happen. I mean, that's, that's kind of the what is you know, and we, so back to that mindfulness idea, I think that one of the principles of mindfulness is what is, is what is. We can play the what if game, um, what I wish to have happened, all those things, but what is, is where we are. And so if we get away from that, it helps us get away from the blame and ask the question, so what now? You know, what do I do from this point? Yeah. What have you learned about mindfulness from your children? <laughs> so yeah mindfulness is, <laughs> is probably one in relationships period parenting and uh you know significant other relationships i think mindfulness is the key because um we're tested right i mean there's somebody else who's trying to get what they want and we're trying to figure out how to be in that place of control so um, my kids are always instructing me on how to, uh, how to be mindful. Not so much anymore. They're adults now. Uh, now we're doing that transition, you know, where yeah. uh, just the other day um, when I was talking to me, I said, are you asking my permission? Because it's on you now. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't have permission at this point. And, and they, I've made the change, I think, uh, as fast or as slowly as they have um, when we still, you know, get to that place. Because I think you're changing as a, as a parent of, of younger kids, you're trying to figure out how to guide them yeah. uh, without, you know, the, the force, they, they still are going to do what they're going to do, but you're trying to guide them. And then after that, you're trying to uh, mentor and coach them and then friend them. And so we're at that point where we're transitioning into friendship. Yeah. Well, my son's 19 and uh, we thought he was gone because he went off for college and he was in residence and, and we kind of, we kind of got that, mindset that you know he's he's off as an adult pretty much and he's on his own and he had that mindset as well and then of course the pandemic came along mm -hmm. and he had to come back home and he's been home ever since just doing online schooling so he's still studying math and physics and doing all that online but it kind of does a number when you think okay he's sort of on his own and now he isn't but it's all about just gradually letting him go and helping him realize that he's the one making most of his decisions now. And yeah, you know, it's a whole different thing. How old are your children? So the irony before I get to my kid's age, the irony is letting them go. They were already, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you never had control. <laughs> you thought you did. And there may be some ways that we can formulate their, uh, you know, more punish them for behavior than formulate their behavior. But yeah. um, letting them go is always interesting because we fooled ourselves into thinking that we could ever hold them. <laughs> right? so so true. My, yeah. So I've got a 27 year old daughter and a 24 year old son. Um, and they have also played uh, round robin through our house during the pandemic. Uh, we had them both home for uh, several months in the beginning and my daughter a little longer. And then um, she decided to come back um, while she awaits you know, the kind of the, the switch ever, but uh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it's quite a challenging time. I want to talk to you, Lee, about your spirituality and how you feel spirituality plays a role in a mindful life. Well, I don't think you can be spiritual and particularly spiritual unless you are mindful. I mean, if we think about, um, I've, I've had a conversation about what is prayer to me and uh, prayer is being thankful. Um, I, I'm pretty big on gratitude and it's being thankful. Um, and that takes a point of really of, of kind of in my mind listening. Um, and so we can fill a lot of our spirituality by, you know, kind of thinking and, and, uh, asking and all of that, or we can be in receptive mode. What, you know, what's my calling? What's my purpose? What's my meaning? And an experience, you know, I, I think one of the things, um, religion, the root of religion is religio, which is to control. Mm-hmm. And so I think yeah. that a lot of what's happened in religion is trying to get people to have an experience by somebody else's path to experience. And uh, so there is a piece of that that can be useful, but it can also be um, something that shuts us down. And so spirituality for me is connection that there's something bigger. Uh, whatever, you know, individual beliefs are that we're a piece of a bigger thing. Um, and so my experience of uh, deeper spirituality is always in nature. Um, I'm first an introvert and second, uh, tend to be more uh, aware of my natural surroundings than a building or anything else. And so when I'm seeking uh, more of a, a connection to my spirituality, I, I head for the woods or to the water. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I do too. I find nature is such a a soothing place to be and it helps me feel grounded and absolutely. Let's talk about boundaries. Uh, It's such an important topic and it can help us if we understand how to set boundaries. And if we don't quite understand it, our life can just be a complete turmoil. What are your thoughts on boundaries? Yeah. And so back to parenting, you know, I think one of the things that often happens is we don't do a good job of teaching kids boundaries because a boundary is a no. And not many parents want their kids going, no, you can't do that. You can't say that. And so we often teach them to um, not hold good boundaries. And so that's about to simplify it down for me. A boundary is no, you can't treat me that way. And it is a challenge. Um, so part of the work I do with couples is, you know, so what I'm trying to do with a couple is get them to be a team. Mm-hmm. And while I'm helping them be a team, I'm also saying, and yet you have to be you know, clear about who you are and how you want to be treated on that team. And so the boundaries is a very important part. And I've noticed how many people really struggle with that. Just simple no, though. Uh, and I mean, there are, how that comes out, and it's not just no, but that really is how we think, no, I won't be treated that way. Um, I hold that as a combination with standards. Standards is what I expect of myself, what I'm going to live up to. So, for instance, um, I may say, no, you can't raise your voice at me. My standard is I'm not going to raise my voice at you, right? Because whether you hold that, that boundary or not, I'm going to say I'm, I'm going to treat you with respect. I'm going to treat you with kindness. That, those kind of my standards. A boundary, though, is often mistreated because what I hear people often do when I talk about boundaries, I remember I was doing a um, seminar and it was a multi-week seminar on boundaries. 
And this woman comes marching towards me, you know, it was before class. And I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. I've seen this look before. Yeah. And she marched up and got, and, and I'm, I'm kind of tall. I'm yeah, six, four. And so she's was pretty short. So she is standing as much as she could in my face. And she's looking at me and she said, your boundary thing doesn't work. And I said, what do you mean it doesn't work? And she said, I did it to my husband and it didn't work. And I said, you don't do boundaries to someone. They're for yourself. Right. And so if you did it to him, I'm sure it didn't work because as while you're trying to do it to him repeatedly, you're probably violating his boundaries and getting into, you know, a pretty uh, escalated event as opposed to saying, no, you can't talk to me that way. No, you can't raise your voice that way. No, you can't, you know, whatever it is. Um, so boundaries, a very rich topic. Um, it's, but to, bring it down to the base. Again, it's kind of like a, a game. You can, you can learn the rules really easily and then it's really hard to master. So the rule one of a boundary is it's a no. Mastering it takes us working. And generally what happens is when people start setting boundaries, they become more and more aware of how those boundaries extend outward. You know, they, you kind of, you know, my basic boundary is to feel physically safe. And so if somebody is threatening me physically, I need to create a strong boundary immediately. Um, the next one out is more emotional safety. And, and that can proceed out. Like if you're raising your voice at me, that, that's a, a line between emotional and physical. If you raise your voice at me, I'm going to feel somewhat threatened. Um, if you're calling me names, that becomes emotional. Right. And so the more we go out, the more uh, fuzzy we, we, they are and the more clearly we have to define for ourselves what is my boundary. So that's kind of the basic. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and I'm sure it's something that comes up all the time when you're dealing with couples. Because couples and people. And you know, people in general. Right? You can't thrive if you don't have boundaries. Right. I mean, I, I'm pretty clear about that. If, right. if you're letting people treat you the way they want it to, and this is one of the, the misconceptions, people think that somebody else should treat them well. Mm -hmm. And my thing is, they're your boundaries. You know, if you don't hold them, don't expect the other person to follow them. I want to talk about the topic of Black Lives Matter. It's something that uh, is on so many people's minds these days. And, you know, racial prejudice has been such a problem and injustice and so on. What are your thoughts about the, the, the campaign Black Lives Matter and how we can improve the world by being... Uh, just better people when it comes to uh, accepting everyone. Yeah, so part of this is um, the, our difficulty right now of, of hearing, of listening to each other and hearing what's behind the, what's the pain behind that. You know, whether you agree or disagree with someone's perspective, are we listening to what's behind that? Um, as I watch where we are and the polarization that we're in, a much uh, a lot of that is our incapacity of hearing somebody else's pain um, and often that's because of you know our own feelings that you know somehow that's going to take away our pain if somebody else you know voices their pain and so we've now gotten to that point where uh, the lines are keep getting drawn um, over a topic that should be us saying, wait, what's causing this pain? Why are we at this place of uh, really an inflection point of pain? Um, I think that we can look at our culture on any level and say there's inequality, you know, and there are some who say inequality is okay. 
right? I mean, that's your problem if, if, you're, if you've missed out. But to just start with being able to say, we live in an unequal society, unequal world. Um, you know, when, many times when I'm talking with people, I, I'll get to the point where I'll say, have you ever traveled the world? I mean, have you ever been somewhere else to see <laughs> how that compares, how we compare? Um, and most people haven't, um, but it's an eye opener, right? And, and so part of uh, what I think we, we are at the point of being able to say, let's hear each other, let's listen to each other, let's learn from each other, and let's find a bridge, or we just keep driving it apart. And that includes Black Lives Matter and it includes the political divide of Democrats and Republicans and, and all of it. It's just for me a point where we've decided not to listen to somebody else because we're afraid what they say will take away from what I feel. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's, it's, uh, it's difficult for a lot of people, that's for sure. And yeah. uh, we've, we've, we're at a difficult place, but hopefully it can get better. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I'm just going to cut in here. Have you ever struggled with being stuck, with feeling like you want to move forward and it just isn't happening? Maybe you are are just feeling really frustrated in your business. Maybe you're feeling lonely and isolated. Maybe you're filled with anxiety. Maybe you're having trouble sleeping. Maybe it's about a habit that you just can't break. You can't lose weight or you're trying to quit smoking and it's just not happening. Well, I coach people just like you and I help you through hypnosis. I'm a certified hypnotist and I would love to have an opportunity to work with you to help you. It's a five session package for most people that have these kinds of issues. Give me a an email. Send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com, and let's jump on a call and let's talk about what I can do to help you move forward, make changes, and live a better, more contented, happier life. You can do it. So send me an email and let's get started. I have a half price offer available because I'm doing a beta launch. I've already worked with some people on this and it is just met with incredible success. So I encourage you to move forward, make a change in your life and make things happen. Now back to the show. I want to talk to you about living your purpose because that's something that you you talk about sometimes too and it it seems to me there are an awful lot of people that are struggling and floundering and they can't figure out what their purpose is uh how do we truly get to the bottom of what our purpose is in life you know so purpose to me it's i I talk about there's a triad meaning purpose and impact and that is i think what we're designed for um you know uh part of what we're always looking for is how to make sense of things that happen to us. That's our meaning piece. Purpose for me is how we, we go out, how we move forward with making a difference. And the impact is that making the difference, you know, how specifically does our purpose end up making a difference? I don't think that we can avoid making an impact in our world. I mean, that's humans are impact creators, no matter what we do. So impact happens. The question is whether it impacts the world in a way that leaves it better or leaves it worse. And so my first thing is simple question. Do you want to leave the world better than you found it or worse than you found it? 
there aren't many people who really will say they leave it want to leave it worse. And so if you don't want to leave it worse, what is it that you want to do that's going to move it in a better way? That will end up being your purpose. I think that we all have unique gifts. And one of the problems with people is what I do really, really, really well. I don't even notice that you can't do that really, really, really well. I mean, because it's so innate in me. And uh, so usually our purpose is a point of our gifts, making a difference in the world. Um, that, I mean, that, that's, to put it together, it's, can I find a way of using what I've got as my, uh, my specialness to make a difference for the rest of the world? Many times it takes a conversation with other people, you know, what, what do you see within me? Uh, because we miss the mirror. We can't see that, that mirror point. But once we find that, once we figure out where we're truly gifted, then it's figuring out, you know, how do I move that into the world? The interesting thing is when we do that, there's a feedback loop. Meaning comes from that. The more meaning we have, the more we live into our purpose. The more we live into our purpose, the more meaning it has. And oh, by the way, the more impact we're making at the same time. So those gears start turning once we decide that, you know, we want the world to be a better place when we're not here uh, and, and how to think through that. David Brooks talks about this idea of having um, your work resume and your eulogy resume. And that's one way for people to get to that. You know, what do we want to be remembered for when, when we're not here, somebody's given our eulogy, what's the resume they list. And if you start with that, you can back up and say, okay, now how do I have to get to that? How do I make it so that somebody would say that? When I deal with my clients, a lot of them feel like they've found their purpose, but then they say, but fear is holding me back. I don't know why I have all this fear. How do you help people find courage to move forward? Yeah. So, well, there's no separation there, right? I mean, so my kids were, were young. I, I helped with my son's Cub Scout troop and we were, you know, Cub Scouts, they're at the school and they had us in like a science room or something. And so they're doing their little work at these high top tables. And I hear my son and, and three other boys talking about something that happened with this. It was a, a fire and the, you know, the firefighters. And they were talking about that, you know, they were, they were brave. They were courageous. And I went over and I said, Hey guys, what does that mean to have courage? And they looked at me and said, oh, that's when you don't have any fear. And I said, really? Because if you don't have any fear and you do something, it's just doing something. I mean, that's just acting. There's nothing big about that. You're just doing it. Because I kind of think that courage has to be there. And the lead part is fear and acting anyway. And I think that one of the things we've done is that we're use, misusing fear. Um, I always talk about fear. We use it as an avoidance indicator. You know, I feel fear, so I'm going to stay away from that. And I think that fear is an, an importance indicator. It just tells us something's important. We need to pay attention to it. Um, if I'm running on a trail and there's something squiggly on the trail, suddenly I have a spike of fear and I come to a standstill to look at it. And it, it, it's just saying that's important. Pay attention to it. It could just be a stick. And if so, I can jump over and keep going. It could be something dangerous. In life, though, that importance, like it might be pointing us directly towards what we need to do. And it's interesting to me how much we cling as humans to not wanting to feel fear. We feel the fear. We're not going to do something so we don't feel more fear. So we pull back from it. Most people find, though, that if they 
you feel the fear, they feel it. And then as the book, feel the fear and do it anyway, they move towards it. The fear begins to either dissipate or clarify, you know, and sometimes we can make our choices based on this decision, this decision. I was talking to a, a guy and he had two job opportunities and he went, went to the first job uh, interview, scared to death, stumbled over his words, couldn't get his thoughts out, just felt like it was a full failure. But it was his dream job. And mm. then he was like, man, I really want this job. And he just couldn't get his idea across. He left that one, goes to his other interview, smooth as silk. He's laid back. They're laughing. They're joking. His words flow. And he's like, I could do that job. But, you know, that's it. And so I was talking. I said, so which one are you going to do? He said, yeah, I think I'm going to take the one, you know, where that was smooth talking because obviously I was on there. And I said, let's just for a minute pace that out. Let's say you get that job. You're there for 10 years, five, 10 years. Are you going to want to be there? He said, oh gosh, I'll be bored to death. Yeah. I said, how about that other job? He said, well, that's the thing. It scared me to death. And I said, do you think it might've scared you to death? Because that's where you need to be, that that's what you could stretch into. He said, I don't know if I could do the job. That's their job to decide that, right? Your job is to step in and do it. And so he was avoiding the fear and therefore also avoiding his dream job. Mm. By the way, he took the dream job. He did. <laughs> he did. <laughs> That's a great story, Lee. I want to ask you a question about bullying. Do you have a, a story? Maybe you were bullied. Maybe it's a story from childhood or adulthood, or maybe you were a bully. I don't know. But a story where <laughs> mindfulness would have made a difference. I was probably the antithesis of a bully. <laughs> I tended to, I was Mr. Nice Guy for a long time. I, mean, it's, I still think that I'm a nice guy, but I mean, I, that was something I really tried to live into. And anything that challenged that was difficult for me, which is part of this story. So we had moved about a year before. I didn't have a lot of friends. And um, I, I had these sketch pads because I wanted to sketch, but part of dyslexia is often dysgraphia. My handwriting is horrible. I've had teachers complain for years, drawing, same thing. So I, I sketch pads, but nothing good was coming at it. And so I had this friend of mine who, uh, and I say friend, I mean, we, we still were friends, but this was a strain. So I thought he was kind of my best friend and I was like, he liked to draw. So I gave him my sketch pads. Didn't think anything about it. About a week later, he started passing out these sketch pads saying that I had drawn these, I don't know, soft porn kind of pictures on them. <laughs> it was so anti who I was. I mean, I was a straight laced going to church kid. My father was the pastor. I mean, I was respectful and it was just nothing I would have, have drawn. And I knew that I hadn't done it. But it went around the, the, the circle, you know, and people were just laughing at me, pointing at me. And he I could I saw him do it, you know, and people come up. Oh, I saw what you drew and you're so sick. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't. So it took me a while to figure out what it was. And somebody else came up and said, hey, did you really draw the, the stuff that's in there? I'm like, no, I didn't. So that was the bullying moment yeah. um, that, that left a, 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 an impact. And so here's the, uh, cause I think you're going to pivot to mindfulness about, you know, what does that do for this? And so let me fill in the blank. Yeah. Uh, my mom was a guidance counselor in school. And uh, so I went to her and I said, mom, they're saying all these bad things about me. It's not true. And she said a couple of things that made a difference. And the first one she said is if you put fuel on a fire, it'll burn hotter. If you let it go, it'll burn out. Somebody else will be next up. 
but you're going to have to decide whether you're going to put fuel on it or leave it alone. So uh, that was useful advice to not deny it, not fight it, not, you know, I don't have to lie about it, but just act as if it doesn't bother me at all. So that was my first mindfulness lesson. Yeah. You know, I can feel it, but I don't have to react to it. The second one is she said something that she said to me many times growing up. Now consider the source. And I suddenly had to think about why would that person act that way? Why would he um, be hurtful to me? And I realized it had nothing to do with me. You know, it was his need for attention. He wanted to be the center of attention. And I don't know how him being the center of attention meant to put it on me, but that was his little internal battle. Um, so once I kind of used those tools, um, I could look at him with, I don't know, with empathy, but closer to empathy. Um, I didn't have to become the enemy. Uh, I could see his own insecurity. I could see his own issue. It took about a week and it blew over. And that was it. Yeah. yeah. And lesson learned, right? I mean, that was it, but big lesson learned. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, some of those things can really stop people in their tracks, but you're absolutely right that you you pour fuel on a fire and it does definitely get hotter. And it's yeah. that's sometimes our natural tendency is we think we have to deal with it and we react and, and that just comes becomes hotter and hotter and hotter. So thanks for thanks for those thoughts. As we move on in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Lee. So the first one I'll try is to this. answer fast. Okay. Well just 30 <laughs> second answers are fine. The first one is this who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Um so um I would say the big one professionally, Jack Canfield. Um, you know, that's uh, one of his big things is, is being present and taking responsibility. So definitely him. Uh, he's a good guy and uh, definitely has uh, a lot to say about that. Growing up, it really was my mom. She was always working to help us kind of recognize our emotional intelligence. So growing up until adulthood, my mom. After that, Jack Canfield. How has mindfulness helped you deal with your emotions maybe in a different way than before? Um, so one of the places that it's easy to be uh, present when you're in a good mood. Yeah. My challenge is when I'm upset about something to move back through that. And there is the, um, it's not like you're saying I'm not upset. Mindfulness is saying, okay, I'm upset. Now, what do I do about it? Um, one of my practices has always been to have an activity where I have to be fully immersed Um Scuba diving used to be uh, one of them. I haven't done that for a while, but scuba diving meant that as soon as you started getting ready for that, you better be thinking about that, right? That's all you did. My The person who was my instructor originally and then my dive partner, that was his thing. He's like, it's a mini vacation, you know, for however long I'm underwater, it's only that. And so that was fully immersed, fully present. You can't be thinking about anything else. More recently, it's been jujitsu. And jujitsu is... Uh, a practice in mindfulness because the last thing you want to do is let anger take you over when you're in the midst of sparring because this is not your enemy, right? I mean, the, the, your opponent is not your enemy. They're your, your instructor mm -hmm. in many ways. And so uh, both of those have been helpful for me to kind of understand what is that about life? How can I be fully immersed at times and other times be aware of where the real focus is? Well, oh, that's very interesting that you're into jujitsu. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Oh, my third question is this. Uh, it's about breathing. So how is breathing playing a role in your mindfulness? 
Yeah. So I've always been very interested in, in breath breathing. Uh, from my, in my childhood, I did Taekwondo and my instructor was always talking about, you know, doing diaphragmatic breathing. I was a chaplain uh, for a number of years and used uh, diaphragmatic breathing to calm people down. You could watch their oxygen level just shoot up just by me coaching them through that. They used to call me into the ER to help people through an anxiety attack by getting them focused mm-hmm. on their breathing slowing down their breathing, diaphragmatic breathing. So that was always the big thing. As I've gotten more interested in the kind of the polyvagal theory, breathing is a central piece of bringing our vagal system back into a calm place, um, out of alarm, out of alert, into back into calm. And so where I do that now is in my exercise, I'm very mindful of how I'm breathing. Jiu-jitsu is a good challenge to that. You know, at, at sometimes I'll, my opponent, I'll look at him and go, you might want to take a breath because they're holding their breath, you know, because yeah. of the anxiety of it. And you can't do that long. I mean, it, it, and life doesn't go very well if you're not breathing. So um, I've, I've been very interested in how that works. Uh, my son and I have, have kind of done the Wim Hof approach to breathing, which is kind of an interesting uh, methodology. But for the most part, I practice really simple breathing through my nose, deep into my diaphragm and a slow exhale. And that's, it's, uh, complicated as I make it. Yeah, very, very uh, good. And I, I like Wim Hof concepts as well, and have been doing all, a lot of Wim Hof stuff for quite a while now. Um, if you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? And you've got seven books, and your your books are really terrific. Thrive Principles and the Immutable Laws of Living, and quite a number of others. But uh, what book would you recommend that's related to mindfulness, Lee? So if I were to just say, you know, my book on Thrive Principles does have mindfulness in it, that yes. would be the big one. Um, you know, there are lots of other people. Eckhart Tolle talks about uh, mindfulness and Jack Canfield does too. There are others, um, but I, I tend to think that the, you're looking for an approach that just makes you, make, clicks for you. you know, mm-hmm. and, and we've already talked about mindfulness as being presence. And so finding an author who explains presence to you in a way that makes sense, how, wherever that is, makes sense. I, I thrive principles. I try to break mindfulness down into a very simple uh, concept. Uh, but if you want to expand on that, Eckhart Tolle has written tons on how to be mindful. Yeah, he, he sure has. Can you recommend an app? that you find is good for mindfulness? Yeah, so I do a lot of body tracking stuff. You know, my watch, my Apple watch was the first entree into that. I wear a uh, aura ring to monitor that, especially my sleeping. Um, And heart rate variability is something that I'm very keen on um, and how breathing affects that. And so I use Elite HRV um, and it tracks your heart rate variability. You actually, it's one of those where you can hold your finger over the camera mm-hmm. and it, you know, it, it will do a little track. And so you can watch as you're working on your breathing to do it. They also created um, a little hand, little finger monitor. It kind of looks like an oxygen sensor. And you clip that on and it gets a real-time reading of your uh, heart rate variability, which basically is telling you, A, how calm you are and B, how recovered you are. Um, I use that as kind of a guidepost for two things. One is to say, am I more stressed than I am allowing myself to be aware of? And because I'm pretty active, I like to take a reading in the morning and say, is this going to be an active day or a recovery day? Um, I, I, for a long time, pushed myself a little too hard and 
55, you know, it's, it, I get, I turned 55 coming up just a few days. So it's time for me to go, okay, my body needs a little more recovery time. Yeah. And if I push too hard, I'm going to pay for it anyway. So uh, heart rate variability, it's elite, uh, E-L-I-T-E, H-R-V. Elite HRV. And does that work with the Apple watch or does it, is it a standalone? It's a standalone on the, the phone. Um, the, so your the newest watches are starting to read HRV. I don't have the newest, um, heart rate variability doesn't show on mine. It does on my daughter. She's got a newer one. So I, for a long time used that finger thing. Now that my ring, the aura ring reads it in all the time and tells me you know, I'll get up in the morning and it gives me a readiness score mm-hmm. and I can go in and look at what my HRV was overnight, which is kind of gives me a baseline. Well, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Well, your website is thriveology.com and that's just how it sounds. T H R I V E O L O G Y. A couple of times I left the E out and that yep. doesn't work very well, no, no, <laughs> but no. thriveology.com. What, can we expect to see when we go to your website, Lee? Yes. So uh, there's some information about me. The Thrivology podcast is that, and in fact, the shortcut there is thrivologypodcast.com. That lands you right on the Thrivology uh, podcast pages uh, of that. But um, it tells a good bit about me, uh, has some links to my books uh, and other information, but uh, just a place to learn. Thrivology is the art and science of learning to thrive. Um, I consider myself to be the world's first thrivologist, mainly because I coined the term. <laughs> so I can claim that. <laughs> I guess you can. <laughs> yeah. So I'll put that on my card. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But that's that's the uh, the place where you can begin to learn about what thriving is about and my approach to that. Well, Lee, it's really been great to get to know you. I really appreciate the work you do and want to just applaud you for doing all this work to help so many people in the world. What final word of advice would you give to someone who just wants to live a happy, contented, thriving life? Yeah, so mindfulness is a huge piece of that. Um, So if you add mindfulness in with finding what is that meaning and purpose for you, um, you are well past wherever else you need to be. The anchor point to that is that you get to choose to be responsible for how you move forward. So responsibility, choosing that path is always the beginning point. Lee, thanks a lot for being on the show today. Bruce, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. My pleasure. Bye now. Bye-bye. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for listening, for subscribing, for reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, and thanks to Erica Flint's Cascade Hypnosis Center for being our valued sponsor. Hey, Erica, we really appreciate you, and Erica is a terrific teacher of hypnosis, and I know that because I am a graduate of her program. Now, if you're a healer or a coach or a counselor or someone who just loves helping people, Consider the powerful results that can be achieved with hypnosis. You can become a hypnotist, just like I did. Contact the team over at CascadeHypnosisCenter.com. And if you'd like to work with me and break through some of those mind blocks, maybe lose weight, maybe quit smoking, maybe it's something else, I would be so thrilled to work with you. Don't put it off. Do it right now. Send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. That's bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. And we will get you on track and we will help you to move toward the goals that you've always wanted to achieve. 
So now take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.